following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. First Peter chapter 1 and 13 to 21. And my title uh, is, the, is Redeemed by the Blood. This is First Peter chapter 1, 13 to 21. So I'm going to read from the English Standard Version. So Peter says, therefore, we'll think about what he said before, but therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God alright so I've got five headings first of all Peter the apostle of hope secondly uh, people with a living hope maintain an alert and disciplined mind thirdly people with a living hope with a living hope are called to holiness and fourthly people with a living hope possess a healthy fear of God and fifthly uh, people with a living hope know that they have been bought with precious blood let's begin then with Peter the apostle of hope now when we think about the authors of the New Testament Paul is sometimes given the title the apostle of faith because central to the thinking of the Apostle Paul is that we are saved from judgment by faith in Christ alone. So Paul is called the Apostle of Faith sometimes. And John is called the Apostle of Love. He tells us that God loved the world in this way that he gave his only begotten Son. On three occasions John tells us that, uh, that God is love and he exhorts us to love one another. John is called the Apostle of Love. But if Paul is the Apostle of Faith and John is the Apostle of Love, Peter is called the Apostle of Hope. It comes out strongly in both of his letters. So first Peter was written to believers in the first century, um, and we read these, verse, these words in the, uh, chapter, uh, sorry, verse 3 of chapter 1 of this letter, uh, where uh, Peter writes this, this is just to set the kind of context of what we're going to say this morning. But Peter writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, 
So here Peter praises God the Father that we are born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Peter is the Apostle of Hope. Now that doesn't surprise me. It doesn't surprise me that Peter is the Apostle of Hope because you'll remember there was a time in Peter's life when he denied that he knew Jesus. On three occasions he denied that he even knew Jesus. He didn't betray him. Judas betrayed him. Uh, Peter denied him. But after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, Peter is uh, forgiven and he's restored. And he's called by uh, Jesus to be the, the church's first pastor. Feed my lambs, feed my sheep. But on that occasion, and you can read about this later if you want to in uh, John chapter 21. Uh, on that occasion, Jesus uh, informs him in a kind of roundabout way that one day he would be put to death. So I often feel sorry for Peter because he lived all of his life from that point onwards knowing that he would face a death sentence. Um, So hope wasn't something that was theoretical for Peter, not in any way. Because um, his future was he was going to die for his Lord. Uh, We might call him a martyr. So for Peter, his uh, future hope wasn't uh, the prospect of living in some nice retirement home looking out over the Mediterranean Sea, visiting the local Roman baths and occasionally doing some fishing as he used to do to pass the time away. Peter's hope was tied up with a life to come. It was to an inheritance that was imperishable, undefiled and unfading which was kept in heaven for him. I suppose that there's nothing quite like a death sentence that's hanging over you to focus your mind on what, on what really matters. But Peter's letter brims with hope. I suppose that Peter looked back at his life and he remembered a day when everything changed. There was a day when Jesus called him, of course, to be an apostle. And Peter had many experiences. Of course, he had that revelation that Jesus was the, uh, the Christ, the son of the living God at Caesarea Philippi. Uh, but... Uh, Peter was with Jesus to the end but then there was that moment when Peter and John arrived at the tomb and the tomb was empty and in that moment or certainly following on from that moment I'm not sure that Peter believed immediately but following on from that moment uh, Peter came to believe that his resurrection and the believer's resurrection had been secured by Christ's resurrection so I love the verb so Peter was the apostle of hope but I love the verb that uh, Peter attaches to hope Living hope. We are born again to a living hope, he says. It's a hope that is alive. It's a hope that cannot die. You know, we we attach uh, ourselves to all sorts of lesser hopes in this life, don't we? Uh, Lesser hopes often, they fade like a withering flower. Continual uh, good health, maybe. Riches, fame, power. Our looks, eventually they kind of Uh, They flicker out like a candle um, burning down the the wick to the end. Uh, They flicker out in the march of the years, uh, in sickness, in stock market crashes, uh, in a media frenzy to destroy your fame. All too often, lesser hopes fade. They wither and die. But not this hope. This is a living hope that uh, Peter calls it. Christians have a hope that can never die. You see, Peter's hope was dependent upon God for its promise to be fulfilled. He who never changes, he who is all-powerful, 
and he who himself can never die. God is immortal, obviously, that's what makes him God. It is he who stands behind the Christian's hope, and he, and he is the ultimate guarantor of that hope. So Peter is writing to, to Christians who are suffering for their Christian confession. Life was hard for many of them. He talks about trials later on in this letter. He talks about being refined by fire. Terrible things happened to Christians in the second half of the first century. Thousands uh, went to the lions and faced the gladiators in the Roman arenas. Countless other believers were dipped into wax and they were set on fire for garden parties for the amusement of the people. Others were thrown to, uh, to starving packs of dogs and they were ripped apart. You see, being a Christian in the first century was no harmless hobby. And when you were baptised, it was often the same as signing your own death warrant, a bit like it might be in North Korea today. And Peter writes to encourage people and to strengthen people in those kind of circumstances. And by the end of the second letter, he speaks to Christians who are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth in which dwells righteousness. So the Christian has a hope of an inheritance that God has planned for him or her. And when your world is caving in, as was theirs, for many people he was writing to, you are to be fortified against being crushed by a living hope that no human being and no human government can ever take away. We are called to a living hope. We are born again into a living hope. And doubtless this letter has saved the sanity of millions of believers through the centuries who have faced a similar kind of persecution to those in the first century. So Peter was the apostle of hope. And just with all of the doctrines of the Christian faith, the ointment of hope needs to be regularly rubbed into our souls. Now let me make a, a comment about how chapter 1 is divided up. So the first, half of, um, the first half of the first chapter, so this is really verses 3 um, to 12, is full of what we call indicatives. So it's statements concerning what God has done for us. So he has given us a new birth, he's given us a new birth, he's given us a, an inheritance, he shields us by his power. These are indicatives, things that God has done for us. And then in verse 13 is a kind of changing gear, which is our passage. Um, and we come to this word, therefore. And then we come to our imperatives, things that we must now do, how we must live. We come to command verbs. And the New Testament letters um, of both Paul and Peter, they almost always operate, operate in that way. This is what God has done. Now, in the light of what God has done, this is how you should live. And you see it really clearly in chapter 1 of 1 Peter. So that's how I'm going to structure this um, message this morning. As people living with a living hope, this is what Peter expects us to be and, to, and expects us, how do you, Peter expects us to live. Now, the main verses that Pastor Tim gave me to preach on are verses 18 to 20 on the, on the blood of Christ. Um, as we look forward to, to, to Easter, but we're going to, walk, we're going to work our way to verses 18 to 20 to kind of get a flow of the sense of Peter's argument because just like in all or most New Testament passages uh, the flow of the argument is very very important so that's my first heading uh, Peter the Apostle of Hope 
And then we come to verse 13 and our second heading which is Peter, sorry, people, um, just have our headings, Pe- people living, sorry, people with a living hope maintain an alert and disciplined mind. So Peter writes, therefore, preparing your minds for action, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So so he's saying this, as, as people who are living with this great hope, you must prepare your minds for action. Now, This is how the ESV uh, translators um, translate something which is actually very difficult to translate. Um, Because if you translate what you find here in the Greek, uh, it's almost meaningless in English today. It's the phrase, gird up the loins of your mind. You find it in the King James Version, I think. Gird up the loins of your mind. In the ancient world, uh, people often wore very long robes. um, And when they embarked on some kind of strenuous activity, and maybe they were about to run, uh, they would um, lift their robes up and tuck them into their belts so they wouldn't trip over them. And that was what uh, was called girding up the loins of their robes, I don't know. <laughs> but girding up their loins. And what makes this even more complicated in the way that Peter writes is that he applies this concept of lifting up your robe and tucking it into your belt to the mind. Gird up the loins of your mind. So, because it's such a difficult thing to translate, the, the English Standard Version settles for prepare your minds for action. The best way that I've heard this put by a commentator, one commentator writes this, that uh, what, it, what Peter is calling us to is to cultivate an alert and disciplined mind. An alert and disciplined mind. Now obviously this includes um, what we allow our minds to dwell on. But I think it means more than that. I think it means to be awake to God. I think it means to be watchful. It it means to be concerned with what God is doing in us and through us, but it also means to be alert to what God is doing in our day and generation. It means to be alert to the times that we live in, where the battles are that we should be involved in, what, what the idols of our time and generation are, the idols that we should be avoiding. It means thinking seriously about what God has given me to do for the furthering of his kingdom. That's why I think it's a very good thing to, um, to, 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 to engage in prayer in the mornings. And to th- obviously there's all sorts of aspects of prayer. But one of the aspects of prayer is to remind ourselves of the commitments um, that God has given us in our lives. So in the mornings I think about being a husband, I think about being a father, I think about being a teacher, I think about the things that God has given me to do. What does it mean for God to give me those roles um, and to be alert to doing them well? Um, So we are to cultivate an alert and a disciplined mind. I think think an alert and and a disciplined mind is a mind that recognises that we're at war. Uh, We're in a war as Christian people for truth and for justice and for righteousness. We're in in a war against lies and injustice and unrighteousness. It's a mind that is shaped by scripture. It's a mind that lives with an eternal perspective in front of us. It's a mind that recognises that heaven and hell are not fictions, but they are real destinations for human beings. It's this sense of, of daily 
being alert to the battles that we are to daily fight in our lives. And you might say, well, I don't have any battles to fight in my life. And I would say, yes, you do. You certainly have battles to fight in your life. Uh, um, We have a battle against sin in in its multiple forms. We have a battle to pray. Uh, We have a battle for our children, how we raise them. We have a battle for our marriage. We have a battle for our purity. We have a battle for our neighbour who doesn't know Jesus. Um, We have a battle for the people that maybe you're translating the Bible for, if you're a Bible translator. We have a battle for the people who are suffering in Burma. We are, there are battles going on all the time. So cultivating an alert and disciplined mind is a recognition that we're in a fight, that we are, God has put our hands to war. Let me tell you what it's the opposite of, a cultivated and disciplined mind. It's the opposite of a mind that drifts along through life, um, which is just focused on personal pleasure and self-gratification. It's the opposite of that, this notion of preparing our minds for action. So it's it's the cultivation of an alert and disciplined mind. If you live with this living hope, if you live in grace, if you stand in the grace of God, if you stand in the kingdom of love and righteousness, then these things will come. And one of the things is that Peter calls us to is an alert and a disciplined mind and then Peter says and be sober minded and and this is connected it's really an injunction to take life seriously let me try and um, give you an example of what this might mean which is with reference to raising our children how do we raise our children and I I think a lot about this because I've I've got six, so I've got a lot of time to thinking about how I raise my children. But if I have one, I hope I do the same. You see, what you want for your children is one of the most accurate ways of measuring your deepest beliefs about the world. Just like what you do with your money and your time. If you have, if you have excess money and time, what do you do with it? It tells you more about your true worldview than what uh, you might imagine it to be. But what we want for our children tells us a huge amount about your worldview. Um, my late uh, father used to say to me, "Today we raise our children. We raise our children in a play culture." And um, I wasn't really sure what he meant until my children got into their teenage years, and I began to think that he was right. You know, there's this idea today that aside from your school studies, um, your teenage years and increasingly your time into your 20s and even into your 30s. The kind of years when you're you're entitled to sort of mess around, bum around, to be a bit crude, to live a kind of carefree life, to carry as little responsibility as possible. It's a time when you let your hair down as much as you can and have as much uh, fun as you can. Hours on computer games and Netflix. Lots of dating and parties. The time to travel the world. Um... It's sort of part of an ethos that says I I sit at the centre of my reality and my needs and my dreams and my bucket list are the most important things in the universe. It's really part and parcel of a bigger sort of worldview perspective, we might call it postmodern or late modern perspective, that there is no truth, there's nothing really in the world to take too seriously, life is about your fun, it's about your pleasure, and pleasure and fun are some of the big idols of the West today. This is the kind of thing that my dad meant my, when he talked about a play culture that we introduce or we allow our children to kind of evolve into. But this is exactly the opposite of a sober 
minded life that Peter's talking about here. He says, therefore prepare your minds for action, action and be sober minded. Sometimes with my um, children, I watch a, document, a documentary made by the BBC called Ambulance. An ambulance is um, it's a, a kind of real life documentary where camera crews follow an ambulance um, for about the period of a week or two weeks um, as they go to all their different call outs in a major English city. It might be London or Manchester or Liverpool. And they get literally hundreds, thousands of call outs, especially on a Friday night and a Saturday night. And, and these call outs have increased multiple times over the last 40 years, the number of call outs that ambulances get. And they get called out to all kinds of situations. And after watching uh, this documentary for several episodes, I've come to the conclusion that about 80% of the incidents that these ambulances are called out for involve drugs, domestic violence, fights and stabbings in nightclubs and bars. Almost 80% of the things that they attend to are to do with human sin and wickedness. And the only conclusion I can come to is that my nation, the United Kingdom, is in a moral and spiritual crisis of Olympic proportions. Now, I've said this before, and I think it's true that we are living through a civilizational moment, because the whole secular project, the rejection of the Judeo-Christian heritage of the Western world, is disintegrating before our very eyes. The West is literally self-destructing. And you think, well, this won't affect Thailand. It will affect Thailand in a huge way and all other countries of the world if the West kind of slips into an abyss. This is a, a, a kind of world. Um, there's, a, there's a sense of destructiveness across the whole world. Whoops, excuse me. Which is um, the end of a paradigm, really, that we've uh, bought into in the Western world. But here's my point. And this is just one example of why we need to be serious-minded people. Um, and we could uh, the, 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 uh, um, the self-destruction of the western world but we could be talking about um, other things in the world that are equally serious there are millions of people who have never heard the gospel we could be talking about people trafficking uh, prostitution in Thailand millions of people in the Islamic world who know nothing accurate about Jesus my point is that the world is full of need it's full of the need for Christians to take things seriously and Go into battle. And this was my father's point. He used to say, raising our children to a kind of carefree and self-serving existence is not on God's agenda for our families. And you see, those of us who have children, we have to raise them to be fighters for the kingdom of Jesus. We must teach them to be warriors for him. We must teach them the scriptures. We must read them the best Christian books, the best biographies that will prepare them for the future. We must teach them to read the times. We must teach them to live for truth and justice and righteousness. And we must teach them to raise their children in turn with the same principles. You see, not only is the local church the hope of the world, but so is the Christian family. And most of all, we must teach our children that they are not the centre of reality, that Jesus is the centre of reality. And meaning doesn't come from our grades, it doesn't come from our careers, it doesn't come from our university entrance or how big our pension is, and meaning comes um, and purpose come from serving Jesus so Peter says if you have this hope prepare your minds for action 
Be sober-minded and set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's my second point. My third one is this. That people living, people with a living hope are called to holiness. People with a living hope are called to holiness. Verse 14. As obedient children... Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So this is the next command that Peter gives to his readers, a people who God has blessed so much. They were not to conform to the sinful passions that they once knew before, that they once um, had before they knew Christ, but they were to be holy in life and conduct. So what does holiness mean? Well, it means several things, but the main thing it means is to be set apart. And here God is the example that Peter uses. Just as God is separate uh, from sin and evil, so his people are to be separate from sin and evil. Now in the Old Testament, the children of Israel were called to be physically set apart in the land of Israel. Other nations could come and witness the grace of God in their midst, but they were to be separate from the other nations. They were to be different, even down to the last detail of what they wore and what they ate. You know, sometimes I think we we spend a lot of time thinking about why couldn't they mix fibres together, why were there certain foods that they couldn't eat, and sometimes there's only one answer, that they were to be different to the other nations. There's no kind of rational explanation for some of those peculiarities of the people of Israel. But they were just to be different from the other nations in in every single aspect of their lives. And in the New Testament we are not called to to be physically separate from the other nations, also from non-believers. But we are called to a life of separation from sin and a life of separation from the idols of our day and generation. So this call to holiness obviously involves great care with what we do with our bodies great care with what we see with our eyes it it means giving great care to what we allow to linger in our imaginations what we say with our tongues so Peter says be holy for I am holy and the thing is that when you possess this is kind of Peter's train of thought I think when you possess such great hope then you're not allowed to keep some secret sins for yourselves some lustful thoughts, some indulgent self-pity, some secret resentments. Uh, following Jesus means to be separate for God. And just as the children of Israel, uh, of Israel were, not allowed, were not allowed to bow down to the shrines of Baal in the Old Testament, we are not allowed to bow down, to kneel down at the altars of the idols of our day and generation to money and ambition and pleasure and power and fame be holy for I am holy following Jesus is costly so I was in um, Malaysia two weeks ago and um, I was invited to, uh, uh, to a church who support us and they, they asked me to speak to the church and they spent two weeks deciding what they wanted me to speak about and in the end they decided on sexuality how do we respond to the contemporary view of sexuality And I thought, lucky me. (laughs) Anyway, as I was preparing 
to speak to them. Um, I came across this book by a man called Sam Albury. He's a, an evangelical um, Anglican from um, England. And he's written a book called Is God Anti-Gay? Or Anti-Gay, if you're American. And um, in, in this book he explains how he experiences same-sex attraction. So he's attracted to men. But knowing that the homosexual lifestyle is forbidden by scripture, he lives a life of purity and celibacy. Now, of course, his, his stance is hugely countercultural. Today we're, we're expected to, we're urged to express our sexuality in any way that we feel is right for us. Being authentic is increasingly the, the meaning of life. But Sam Aldrey knows that God's creational design for uh, sexuality is heterosexual marriage. And he explains that it's only through a man and a woman in lifelong covenant that the story of the world is told. Every marriage, however imperfect, tells a bigger story of Christ and his church. Um, and uh, however imperfectly that might be. But he has this notion of God's plan for sexuality at the, at the heart of his book. <coughs> Excuse me. And that's why he can't support same-sex marriage. Uh, and that's why he lives a life of celibacy and he puts to death his attraction to men. But in his book he writes something that really struck me. It, was, it really hit home the, the issues that are involved and, and at stake on this issue. Um, you see, against the background of his own same-sex attraction, Sam Albury uh, comments that many Christians feel sorry for him. Uh, they suggest that it must be harder for him to follow Jesus than for them. And he writes this in his book. He says, And as someone in this situation, what Jesus calls me to do is exactly what he calls everyone to do. Whoever wants to be, and he quotes Jesus in Mark chapter 8, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. And then he says, It is the same for all of us. Whoever... I am to deny myself, take up my cross and follow Jesus. Every Christian is called to costly sacrifice. Denying yourself does not mean tweaking your behaviour here and there. It is saying no to your deepest sense of who you are for the sake of Jesus Christ. And then he says, ever since I've been open about my own experiences of homosexuality, a number of Christians have said something like this, the gospel must be harder for you than it is for me, as though I have to give up more than they do to follow Jesus. But the fact is that the gospel demands everything of all of us. If someone thinks, if someone thinks that the gospel has somehow slotted into their life quite easily without causing any major adjustments to their lifestyle or aspirations, it is likely that they have not really started following Jesus at all. And I thought, wow, how radical the gospel is and how we need to hear this, these kind of voices at a time when so many Christians are surrendering on this issue. You see, he says, if I'm going to follow Jesus, it touches the deepest part of me. But that's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And it's the same for all of us. We all have deep things that we have to surrender to be followers of him. So we live in an age that says... When you express who you are, you find life. But actually, in Christianity, it's the opposite that is true. It's when you deny those deepest <coughs> sinful urges that that is the, the path to true life and joy when you forsake those things for Jesus' sake. 
So Peter writes, if you're living with this great hope, you must be holy for I am holy. That's my third point. My fourth point is this. That people with a living hope possess a healthy fear of God. So in verse 17 he says, And if you call on him as father, <coughs> excuse me, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with, uh, with fear throughout your time of exile. So Peter exhorts his readers to conduct themselves um, with reverent fear, I think the... Uh, I think the King James Version says, during your time of exile here. So what is this fear that Peter's talking about, that believers are to have? Well, it's not some fear of punishment. It's not some fear of hell, because Jesus took our punishment on the cross. Um, and if we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, then there is no, uh, there was no condemnation for those who believe in him. Our salvation is eternally secured. So this kind of fear is not a fear of punishment or of hell. So let me suggest, um, let me think about, let's, let, let me suggest that the, the, the fear that we are to have towards God is expressed in two ways. First of all, the kind of fear that we are to have comes from knowing who God is. And that's all. Just knowing who God is. And also who we are in relation to him. But I have a friend um, who worked for many years in England with young people. And um, he, he, he got used to listening to their objections about God. They came in torrents. Um, why did God ask Abraham to offer Isaac? This is just a sample of the kind of objections they had to God. These were young people. Who were, many of them weren't Christians. They would say, why did Abraham, uh, why did Abraham have to offer his son Isaac? Um, they would, he would say, why did God command that the Canaanites were killed? by the um, Israelites why does God hate homosexuals to use their language uh, the whole kind of moral case against God um, this is kind of standard stuff today you know 30 years ago people would say uh, Jesus couldn't have turned water into wine uh, Jesus couldn't have walked on water he couldn't have risen from the dead those things don't happen because science has told us those things but if you go to your average universities especially in the west today uh, the case against God is not those things, it's the moral case against God. God is just an immoral God. And we are better than him. So this friend of mine, um, who worked with these young people for a long time, he said one day it dawned on him that these people he was engaging with, that the core of their argument was based on the fact that they believed God was their equal. Or even that they knew better than God about how to run a universe. They thought they had this relationship of, of equality with him. He was just one other player in the universe along with them. And their opinion was equal to his, if not more valid than his. But here's the thing I want us to see this morning, is that one of the things that comes from a serious engagement with reality itself is this realisation that God is of, a, is of a completely different order to us. You know, people say, what's the difference between us and God? God never thinks that he's, that he's us. <laughs> Sometimes we think we're him. You know, we're here just for 80 years. <clears throat> Perhaps God is eternal. In the great scheme of things, we, vir we know virtually nothing about anything. 
but God has wisdom that is infinite. Our power to do anything is very small. Uh, God spoke once and at least a hundred billion galaxies came into existence and each one has at least a hundred billion stars in that galaxy. He spoke and they came into being and God has the power to hold every single human being to account and one day he will. God is God of peace but one day uh, before peace will be achieved he will confront and he will destroy all of his enemies. This is the God of the Bible, this is the true God. Now, so to know God as he is, is to have a healthy fear of him. He is our only hope. Uh, and to reject him leaves us with sin that overpowers us, it leaves us with sorrow that will engulf us, and death that will one day destroy us. You see, rejecting God is not some lifestyle choice, it is personal suicide. About um, three years ago, my uh, mother-in-law, Barbara, died. Uh, my mother-in-law, Barbara, died three years ago. And, um, and a year before she died, her sister died at the age of 63. She died just out of the blue. She just kind of lay down on her bed and had a massive heart attack and never got up. And about two weeks later, Barbara, my mother-in-law, um, came to visit us on the train and I collected her from the, from the, the station and uh, she wasn't a believer she, she got into the car next to me and she was very shaken by the death of her younger sister and she said to me do you know what, this, what the lesson of all this is I've been thinking what is the lesson of all of this that's of her sister dying she said to me you have to have as much fun as you can before you die this is the kind of old argument we're on the Titanic it's sinking we're going to die but let's squeeze in the last game of poker before we die that's hedonism, hedonism. And I said to her, Barbara, that's not the lesson of your sister's death. The lesson of your sister's death is that while we can, we must get right with God. Because one day we will all stand before him. And she died nine months later. And before she died, she got right with God. Amazing. You see, we need to conduct ourselves with fear just because we know who God is and who we are. So we have this accountability to God. So although we're not, we're not afraid of hell and judgment as believers, if we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, but we are accountable for what we do with our time and with our gifts while we're here. So God is a just father and he loves us, but he rules his household and one day we must account to him. That's my fourth, fourth, fourth point. People with a, a living hope possess a healthy, um, a healthy fear of God. And here's my final thing, my fifth point. Is that people possessing a living hope know that they have been bought with precious blood. People possessing a living hope know that they have been bought with precious blood. So Peter adds another reason for conducting ourselves with fear in verse 18 he says knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers not with perishable things such as silver or gold but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without spot or blemish so this is Peter's train of thought he says remember that once you lived futile lives wasted lives you lived the pattern of life that you inherited from your parents and they from their parents 
You had no meaning. You had no purpose in why you were born. You had no great hope to look forward to. As I was thinking about this, I was thinking about the words of William Shakespeare who put these words into the mouth of Macbeth. Life is a told by an idiot, sorry, life is a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. And without God, Shakespeare was absolutely right. Uh, Peter says, you live lives of futility. But, says Peter, not now. You've been ransomed, you've been bought with a great price, or most translations have, you've been redeemed. You've been redeemed by this great price. Now, you need to forget gold and silver, even they perish in the end. And in fact, even a rich human being could pay in gold and silver for you. But actually, you weren't redeemed by anything that, could, that human beings can offer. You were redeemed with something far more precious. You've been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. You've been bought by his blood. When I was a boy, there was um, a, Rum- a Romanian pastor uh, around who... He lived in America, but he uh, used to visit... England regularly, his name was Richard Vermbrandt. And his most famous book was called Tortured for Christ. So Vermbrandt was terribly tortured in uh, communist Romania for his faith. His book is very hard to read, it's so disturbing. But eventually he got out from behind the Iron Curtain, came to England and then to America. And when I was about nine years old, I heard him preach in a church. And he told his story, and he started by saying this, I was ransomed. I was bought, and we're all thinking he was bought by the blood of Christ, which would be true. But he said, in those days, the communist authorities in Romania were so desperate for hard currency that they would sell their political and religious prisoners to people in the West who would raise money to ransom them. And uh, he was bought by um, Christians in the West who collected money for him. And at the end, at the end of his uh, his um, message <clears throat> he, um, somebody put their hand up and said how much did you cost uh, and he said $10,000 which is a bit more in those days than now but I wonder how much you would be worth how much I would be worth I'm teaching my I'm trying to help my son revise for his biology exam at the moment and I, I believe that our bodies are largely made of, of oxygen, carbon, hydrogen, nitrogen and calcium and phosphorus and apparently if you were to take all those elements and sell them on the market today you get about $17 we're probably worth about the chemicals in our body are worth about $17 that's all now today you can sell your kidneys and other organs for a lot of money but uh, it's not advisable <laughs> but here's Peter's point he's saying that you were bought with something infinitely more precious than money it's something that only God could pay the blood of Christ, the blood of the Son of the Father's love, Jesus, God's perfect Lamb. He was slaughtered for you. Now, behind all of this is, in Peter's mind, is the story of the Exodus. I don't have time to expand on that, but the story of the Exodus is there at the back of Peter's mind. But his point is that since you were bought with such a costly gift, you now no longer belong to yourselves. That's his argument. You know, owned by another, you belong to him. And 
if, you are, if it took the blood of Christ to secure you, to pay for you, then you can never pay it. How could you pay for your sins in a currency that was valuable to God? Because you didn't have access to the blood of Christ. It could only be paid by God himself. And you receive it as a gift. We are redeemed, we are ransomed. But that raises the question. If God paid a ransom to redeem us, which was his son, who did he pay the ransom to? This is quite an important question. You know, some people think that God paid for us by by giving his son to the devil. The payment was his son and he gave the payment to the devil. So, for example, if you read C.S. Lewis's book, The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, if you know the Narnia stories, then C.S. Lewis seemed to suggest that. Because Aslan offers himself as a ransom for Edmund to the White Witch and she represents the devil. And Edmund is released. But, you know, Lewis got a lot of things right. Now, I love C.S. Lewis, but I think he was wrong on this. Because, you see, God never pays the devil anything. It's not as if after the fall somehow uh, God gave Adam and Eve to Satan and he owned Adam and Eve. So it was the ransom paid to, well, John Stott says in his book on the cross, that if a ransom was paid, it was paid from God to God in order that God might satisfy the demands of his own justice. The ransom was paid within the Godhead, if we could think of it in those kind of terms. You've been bought with blood. And remembering that, you are obligated to live differently, says Peter. Knowing that your lives are no longer futile, uh, but now that your lives are full of eternal purpose, then you must um, conduct yourselves with reverence and fear during your brief stay on earth. And then Peter finishes, and I don't have time to talk about these verses, but in verse 20 he says, He, that is Jesus, was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the, for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.